We read in reading in Luke 22, beginning verse 39. We'll read uh, simply through verse 52. <clears throat> I'm sorry, 53. Luke chapter 22, beginning verse 39. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. God's Word says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as was his, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And those around him saw what was going to happen. They said to him, Lord, Shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Luke chapter 22 is where we find ourselves this morning still. It's a lengthy chapter, but it's got a lot of important content as we walk into our Lord's passion uh, that we describe in terms of His uh, circumstances coming up to His death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, It really begins with the triumphal entry, but many place His... uh, outpouring of himself here in the Garden of Gethsemane as the beginning point. We come into the Garden, it's very obvious from the both Luke as well as the other Gospel writers, that Christ is in a great state of turmoil, and a great state of anguish. And it didn't just come upon him as he walked out of Jerusalem up onto the Mount of Olives. He knew this was coming. He had been warning his disciples what was going to happen on this trip to Jerusalem. He very soberly instituted the Lord's table, communion. He has prayed extensively for his disciples in their presence. He has given them some very specific and detailed last-minute instructions. Luke doesn't record Uh, Many of those, but we have them in John. He has just identified for them that they were going to abandon him. That was after having to settle a squabble over who is going to be the greatest. He's had to tell one of his inner three, Peter, that he would betray him. And then he would 
try to communicate some very last instructions on this transition of time. From the time when Christ would be there every day meeting their needs in the physical form to the time of the church age and what it would be required of them during that age where He would be at the Father's right hand preparing a place for them. He has already stated before leaving the upper room that things concerning me have an end. And he saw that end. So the idea that somehow Christ transitioned on the trip from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives across the valley there, um, that he it suddenly started to weigh on him really doesn't mesh with the whole idea that this is what he was brought here to do. He was well familiar with it and he was uh, obviously demonstrating a lot of concern, a lot of serious-mindedness and anguish coming up to this event. But here we have it, perhaps uh, one of the crescendos of his anguish, certainly. that This has been building and building and building. <clears throat> it's going to crescendo in the garden. We're going to see it, of course, then on the cross. And surprisingly, not at his, immediately at his death, but really preceding that. We're going to find these times when it is heavy upon our Lord what he was sent here to do. And so we find him going up the Mount of Olives. This was not unusual. It tells us in verse 39 there was this custom. The disciples are following him. And he's come to the place. Not just physically, but he's come to the place spiritually. And it's time uh, to deal with some issues between him and our Lord. Or him and his Father. Our Lord and his Father. Before we look at that, Let's go, Lord, in prayer this morning. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the opportunity to have your spirit work within us. And we pray that he might have liberty to convict, to instruct, to guide, to comfort. We might be responsive to his work. We know from your word that it is within man to resist him. That it is within man to grieve him. Lord, we pray that we might be guarded from either. That we might allow His movement in our mind and then surrender our will to it. That we might view Your Word not as an option in life, that we might receive it as truth that must be lived. We need your help in this, of course. Lord, we pray that this time might be guarded by your Spirit. That this environment might be also guarded from distractions or anything that would dissuade us from contemplating Your Word, not just hearing it, but meditating on it. 
We praise Him in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. When we studied the work of Judas as the betrayer, we talked about the fact that Christ did not give them any knowledge ahead of time of where they were going to have communion or Passover. That Judas could not betray him then and <coughs> the indication is that <coughs> he left to get the gang once he found out where they were at. Jesus Christ, of course, leaves and is making his way to the, gar- to the Mount of Olives and, and many speculate when did Judas how did Jesus know this and, and did Judas leave with them and then run off and then come back? Um, the mechanics of that aren't really that important, um, but it is uh, vital that we understand that there's a time period involved that allows for the events of the garden to occur. Luke gives us perhaps the briefest description of it. Um, we know from the other passages that there was extensive praying by our Lord that there were at least three occasions where he comes back to his disciples. Um, And we find that uh, this has gone on for some time, that uh, whether the Judas had taken them to the upper room and found them not there and then just said, well, I'll lead you over, we don't know. It's speculation. And uh, it's interesting how many books are interested in speculating that. Um, But we do know that there's a time period between Judas's exodus from the group and the arrest that permit some of the final instructions of Jesus Christ in the upper room as well as all the events of the Garden of Gethsemane. Why would Judas be able to track him there would be very simple because if he's not where you left him, where is he? Where would he normally go? Where what was his pattern of activity? We've been here for a little while this week for Passover What's his pattern? His pattern has been to go up to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, you have a wonderful view of the Temple Mount. You have a view of really much of uh, the city of David, the northern higher part of Jerusalem. Much of the old Jerusalem would have been down the slope a little bit to the south. You have a wonderful view of the Temple Mount. And so Christ preference was to go up there and to maintain that contact physically visible to him there. We find him there going to go to the Lord in prayer and we're going to be looking at contrast today between Christ and his disciples and probably next week as well. This is a critical event in our scriptures. (coughs) Excuse me. It gives us a tremendous insight on some significant theology regarding the humanity of Jesus Christ and His deity, the relationship between Him and His Father. But, and we're going to look at that a lot more next week. But I really want to lay the groundwork of the disparity between the attitude and interests of Christ and those of his apostles, of his disciples. And we're going to seek out what it is that makes the difference. 
It's easy to say, well, this is Jesus. He's the Son of God. That's the difference. But the event itself calls us to a fact that we are dealing with something beyond the difference between being the Son of God and other men, but rather between a a humanity that is fully committed to the will of God and a humanity that is still self-interested. And that is, I think, the key conflict here, the key contrast here between these two parties, Jesus on the one side and his disciples on the other. And I would contend is still a contrast to this day of those who can serve Christ tirelessly, those who, frankly, fall asleep at the wheel. We've come to the place of decision. We may not think of the prayer of the garden as a place of decision, but it is for Christ. And he recognizes it, and he recognizes what is about to occur. He's just instructed them extensively on it. And he comes to them, and in verse 40, we have a very simple instruction. He knew it was happening. He knew it was going to happen that night. He knew it was going to happen the next day. He knew the turmoil that was going to be brought in their life. And he has this simple instruction for them before he goes into his time of prayer some distance away. His simple instruction is pray that you may not enter into temptation. This has been obviously part of our Lord's prayer in terms of training us to pray. Not a prayer to be repeated for whatever reasons, religiously, but rather a training prayer. It's kind of funny when I was, when we were training in something, for example, riding a bike, you have those little training wheels. And uh, we put the training wheels on to help them not fall down and crash and hurt their elbows and heads and chins and knees and things like that. And uh, they're pretty ingenious, really, if you think about it. You know, putting little training wheels on there. Uh, and then that day comes where we take the training wheels off. And we, uh, lots of excitement. It's a big step. It's a rite of passage. Yes, somehow in our praying, we never got the training wheels off for a lot of people. Uh, our Lord's Prayer earlier that He gave in His ministry is really just a training prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Instruction of how to pray. This is the structure. This is the, 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 the way to do that. And among those was that lead us on to temptation, but deliver us from the evil. The evil one. And Christ pulls a portion of that out and says, well, now you're going to learn. And if you apply what you've been trained in now, He doesn't give them the whole Lord's Prayer. He's really focused on this is the issue tonight. Pray that you be not led into temptation. The question comes, what then leads us into temptation that we're praying against? Well, we might say, oh, it's the Satan, it's uh, the world. Um, the temptation that he's referring to in its source is within the disciples. Now, I contend as much as we want to blame our environment for every sin we commit, uh, the temptation that is the strongest is not from outside of us, but from within us. 
the temptation our children have at school to try to conform to the standards, as, and it doesn't matter how low they go, there is a great desire to conform to those standards, and they get lower every year, it seems. And that's not just standards in terms of behaviorally, but even educationally. The standards of performance and the standards of social engagement and the standards of, of appearance and, and apparel, all those things just keep deteriorating. That tension that's in your child going to school to conform to those low, low standards is not the, that outside of themselves' fault. It is something within them. It is that desire to be liked, to be approved, to be popular, to be exalted among their peers. It is a neglect of recognition of who it is they're supposed to be concerned about pleasing. And so we could blame our world's lowering standards for the lowering standards of church children, but the temptation isn't just out there. The temptation is right inside their own hearts because they want to just fit in. They don't want to fit into God's kingdom. They want to fit into the world. And so when the statement is, pray that you be led not into temptation, is really a prayer about ourselves. Because in the garden, there wasn't a lot of other forces at work that we can see. Certainly none that are spoken of outside of what is within man himself. So what is it that's within Christ the disciples missed that night. What is it that led him to this kind of engagement with God that the disciples were to be praying uh, to avoid that the opposite of? What is it that Christ had that they needed, that there was something else there instead that they needed to pray would keep being followed that would lead them into temptation? It's a very hard way of saying that they were praying really guard us from ourselves. For our own propensity to succumb to our flesh. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, we're not talking about a warm room and a droning speaker that puts you to sleep. Okay, I see that application. It's like, oh, he's going to go there. We're talking about. having spent hours preparing for a huge transition. We tried to do that over the last three weeks to explain that. This tremendous transition that, that Jesus Christ has in, on the time frame that night is going to begin. They've been well instructed. They, it has been profoundly communicated to them. They can certainly sense and see it upon Christ's person and countenance. And yet somehow they were not able to make it draw upon their own desires, to draw upon 
their own priorities, their own will, to conform themselves to what was required that night. What was required that night was watchfulness. Be watchful. That was really all Christ wanted from them. Be watchful. And in fact, I believe he essentially tells them that, that it's time to be watchful. For the end is coming and and things are going to be transitioning and and you're going to have uh, a lot of things confronting you here. Be watchful. It's time. And his question he's going to come to them and ask is, could you not watch? Could you not be watchful for one hour? One hour. Luke tells us a little bit here about what was hindering them. Verse 45, he rose up from prayer. He had come to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. You see, they did have some understanding uh, that this was a weighty night. That there's something going on here. They had some sorrow in their hearts regarding what they've been hearing. I mean, just think about it. You, you just got done hearing that, it, that you're going to deny me before the cock crows tonight. You're going to be scattered. Um, you're not longer going to have me around. Um, you're going to have to carry this with you and that with you. Um, they've got some sorrow. They have some understanding that there's something going on. But it has not produced a godly sorrow that has brought them to associate with what Christ is trying to communicate. You see, their sorrow is over themselves, largely. That I'm going to be missing this. We've got these swords, we're not really using them, I don't really understand it. I'm going to deny Him? These things are going to happen? I don't think either one of us are going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What do you think, brother? See, there's a lot of self-interest and concern that we have seen Christ directly address in the upper room. We find it in how producing this kind of sorrow, and I would contend that sorrow, that word sorrow there is referring to kind of a self-interested low. We would call that a depression. There is kind of down. We're here in Jerusalem, and day after day has been just wonderful, hasn't it? What have we been doing day after day? We march ourselves into Jerusalem. First day, we got the triumphal entry. Wow! We get ourselves down there day after day. There's a crowd waiting. Isn't that exciting? Crowd waiting. He's engaging them. He's throwing over tables. He's tossing people out of the temple courtyards. He's, he's stumping all the religious leaders. I mean, this is just incredible stuff. I mean, these are day after day of these experiential highs. And now, all of our hopes have been dashed. All of our projected ideas of what's about to happen have been just crushed, really, where Christ just says, that's not what the, I'm about. That's not what any of this is about. There's something going to happen here. And, and all these guys are just going, oh, this is not good news. When you list off what he just told all of them. And they go out there and they get sleepy. 
not watchful, be considering the ramification of what Christ is about to do. But I believe that sorrow is about a sorrow for themselves. Boy, this isn't really a great day. I mean, this is Passover, and this is supposed to be our... I mean, I thought we were going to get started tomorrow. You know, it was going to be the big day or something. Because it's still Passover. Passover is more than just a meal, really. It's that day which started at sunset. Day of preparation. So we find that, uh, what do we do? Well, we're going to sit here and think about it. What are we thinking? Poor us. That sorrow... I don't find evident of Christ because there was no desire to engage in, in supporting and encourage Him. That sorrow was, was about themselves. I'm going to deny Christ. He said that. How can that be? Disappointment is the reigning sense on these apostles. Christ knew it. And His statement to them was the way over it, the way through it, the way beyond it is pray. Pray that you be not led into temptation. You see, he understood the temptation that was within them. Peter had already denied, I will never do that. Well, you need to pray, Peter. And the evidence is that when they should have been praying, they got sorrowful. They started worrying. Or just complaining. Or just feeling low. Letting those sensations, if you look at the history of chapter 22, just overflow them. Let those feelings just kind of run. And, and it kind of got them down and they fell asleep. One of the key things of people who go into that kind of a state is you just want to sleep. And that's true for me and true for each one of you. When you get into that poor me stuff, how easy it is to go lay down. Right? See the reaction to when things aren't going quite the way you think they should be going? Is to pray. And that prayer is built on an understanding of who God is. See, when things aren't going the way I think they should be going, which is what the case was for each one of these men, Jesus' instruction to pray that you enter not into temptation is an instruction about God. You see, it means that God is attentive. It's a recognition. When I get on my knees and I pray, even if I don't get on my knees and pray, I'm recognizing that God is really in charge of all this stuff going on. That this is His world and His business, even me and my life. And He has a divine right to it. God has a right to engage your life however He desires to do so. He doesn't need your permission. When we go to God, it is our statement to God, I am surrendering myself to you. My prayer is that you might guard me from, not you, not to guard me from circumstances, not to guard me from the world. Lord, guard me from me. Your greatest enemy in your Christian life is you. 
and need for myself. That's my Christian life. I find I'm the one that undermines myself the most. (laughs) Christ's instruction to pray is a recognition, God, I am now subjecting myself to you. Fundamentally, if prayer is done properly, it is founded on an idea, a truth, that there is a God. Not a God that I carved out and set on a shelf. Not a God that I uh, bought and hang around my neck. Not a God that I went out and bought and used my thumbs on all the time. You know those gods? But I'm recognizing there is a God who is the creator of all that exists, who alone is above all things. And once I recognize this sovereign, holy, righteous, loving, good God, and I go to Him in prayer, I am in making a statement. And that statement is, is that I am willing to submit myself to Him. And it, and we don't think of that. Usually we think of it, well, i got to go ask God for some things because i got a grocery list. i got this shopping list i got to go talk to God about. You have a wrong view of God. You have a very pagan view of God, to tell you the truth. True Christian praying calls us to submit ourselves to, to God. And so when I'm coming to God, it is not, Lord, I want it my way, but Lord, what is your way? I want that. And of course, Jesus Christ becomes the wonderful example of that. You see, He doesn't fall asleep because He knows who God is. He has a right view of God. And even in this relationship, we're going to have to talk a lot about next week, even in that relationship between him and his father. But I want you to see where his praying ends because that's also where it began. His prayer begins and ends with the same idea. And that idea is, you are God. And therefore, I surrender my will to yours. And fundamentally, if you're not doing that in your praying, you aren't really praying to God. You're praying to some God, but not the God of all the world. If you're praying is taking on this, this other aspects of just rehearsing how horrible a day you had. Um, Lord, here's my day. It's been pretty bad. Oh, you know, like he didn't know. Like he's your uh, therapist. That's not praying. Because you haven't surrendered anything to him. He is not your bank account. He is not your therapist. Um, He's he's not uh, just someone that needs to hear from you every now and then. Some lonely guy up there that wants a phone call now and again. He is God. When we come to him and pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It is a statement saying that I recognize this world that I live in and the environment. I recognize 
that dead one inside of me, that sin nature. And Lord, um, I, I need your help. <laughs> and I recognize that for your help to be effective in my life, I've got to subordinate myself to you. Temptation to bring God down to some human level in our praying is a strong one. To make Him less than all powerful, all knowing, all loving. And I think somehow, and I've heard people pray like they're talking to a car salesman. Let's make a deal. Prayers. is ludicrous. We are talking <laughs> to the Lord of all. To the King of Kings. To He who is so far above We are like nothing. Grass. Flower. Why is that kind of praying so important? That we pray to God with a humbled, submitted heart at the beginning and at the end. That we start and stop that way because we want to put everything in between under that understanding that, Lord, I'm coming to you as your child. I come with certain level of boldness because I have the blood of Jesus Christ. But, Lord, I'm coming to you recognizing who you are. And I have to submit to who you are. And I end my prayer by saying, Lord, I'm going to do what you want me to do. Most of us don't pray that way. Most of us pray, Lord, do what I want you to do. Don't we? Lord, I want you to do what I want you to do. Instead of, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. See, our praying is 180 degrees wrong. The disciples have been kind of thinking and acting and guessing and praying kind of that way, the way we usually do. And that is a not effectual prayer. And it doesn't deal with sorrow. Not the kind they were dealing with. And so they fell asleep. They couldn't watch. They couldn't stand. They couldn't endure. They couldn't last because fundamentally they weren't grasping who God is and that God has a plan that Jesus Christ Himself is God in the flesh and that there is something earth-shattering that is about to happen. Not just shattering of their lives and their dreams, but earth-shattering for all of history was about to happen. They felt down and slept. They felt kind of low because they didn't get their way. And they said some hard things. Jesus said some hard things about me. and I don't think that's true. There's a little pouting going on. And they fell asleep. Out of sorrow. Not sorrow over what Jesus was sorrowing over. We have two very different kinds of sorrow here. We have one described as that anguish over what it means to surrender to, G- to, to the Father, for Jesus to have to say, Lord, I know what's coming. I know the cup that is poured out for me. I, I grasp it. 
and I'm, I'm willing to surrender myself to it, but Lord, is there any way around this? And, he, and he's pouring himself out there, but it's all based upon a fundamental faith of submitting to the Father. And in that surrendered state, fully surrendered state, he can pour out his anguish to the, to the Father and can deal with these things. These men didn't have that kind of sorrow. Poor me. Life's been hard. Nobody understands me. They fall asleep. The very thing Christ instructed them to avoid. Pray that you not enter into temptation. Well, they succumbed. Christ rouses them. We find other passages. They succumb again. He rouses them. They succumb again. It's just, all right, wake up. It's over. Um, prayer time's done. It's time for me to be arrested. One hour, they were asked to watch. One hour, stay alert. One hour, pray. One hour, engage yourself in your relationship with God. And they were unable to. Now, there have been plenty of people out there willing to give excuses for these guys, um, saying you know, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet, um, that uh, Pentecost hadn't happened, that... Uh, they were tired. It was a long day. On and on it goes. We're always willing to excuse failure, it seems, uh, among humans. And then we attribute the success of Christ at the garden. And there was great success there, as we're going to talk about next week more. So um, we want to say, well, that's attributed to him being the Son of God. No. No. Why do I know that that's inexcusable? Why is it that the failure of the disciples here is really something that only God really should forgive? Uh, it's just inexcusable because Christ started off the night with this simple instruction, pray that you enter not into temptation. What was Christ's expectation in that command? His expectation is pretty simple, isn't it? You're going to succeed. Pray that you succeed. Pray that you don't get caught into this temptation to be self-absorbed and suddenly weary and tired and sleepy. I can't stay awake. Oh, poor me. You didn't pray, did you? Christ says you have the tools available to you. His expectation was that they could have. His statement to them over and over again was one of disappointment, not excuse. Yes, he says your flesh, your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. But they didn't they know that? That's why we pray. Because when we come to the Lord in prayer, we are recognizing, I'm down here in the flesh. God's up here. Well, he's a lot higher than that. And I'm moving my spirit to this level. Now, I want to share with you that it was within the capacity of them to succeed that night. If he had told them, do you suppose, on the way over there to prepare a battle plan for the taking of Jerusalem the next day at dawn, do you think they would have been sleeping? Anyone think they would have been sleeping? Not a one of you. 
Interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating to me that, that we, um, and it's just a study of human nature by studying my own family a lot of times, how um, difficult it is to pay attention to things we don't want to hear, like school, and yet how easy it is to pay attention to an inanimate object that makes a noise. Does it move? Just makes a noise. And it's this big. Well, maybe it does move a little bit, vibrate. Because we want to. You see, the problem fundamentally wasn't their fatigue factor. When Christ says the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak, it wasn't the fatigue factor that they were just tired old guys. You see, part of our flesh is that wanter. He wasn't telling them what they wanted. They didn't have a goal of, of a, of, that they wanted, were interested in. And so they became self-absorbed and suddenly they became disinterested. And that disinterest turned into failure. See, when I go to the Lord in prayer, I'm subordinating my will. If I'm praying properly, I'm subordinating my will. And I'm saying, God, I want what you want. Let's start the plans. What do you want with my life? Let's start planning. Did they have something they could have prayed about? Did they have some information to work off of? Did they have some some increased knowledge that God had given to them? Yeah. They had plenty to work over. I mean, we've spent three weeks on it. That's three hours right there. Let's talk about this whole idea of you know, what's this big transition going on? What do you think he meant by this is my body and this is my blood? And that whole foot washing thing. I mean, they had plenty to talk about, didn't they? They had plenty to consider. They had plenty to go to the Lord about. They had plenty to pray about. They had plenty to, uh, uh, well, this is what God's doing. And what do we want? How do we want to engage ourselves? How do I participate in the, in the work of God? You know, Jesus is over there and praying. What, what can I do in this night that... He's, this tremendous stuff is going on that he's told us about. But you see, none of that fell in line with what they wanted. So they just ignored it. Now, I'm going to stop right now. And I want to talk to those of you who are bored. What do you want? What do you want? Because you don't want what God wants. When you pick up your Bible and read it and you're bored out of your skull, I want to ask you, what is it you want? Because that's your God. That's your idol. If you come to Sunday School and Church and you're bored out of your skull, I want to ask you, what do you want? And stop lying to yourself. Say, I want to please God. Because it's a lie. You see, in many respects, most of us have failed just like the disciples. And it is a part of us, our fleshly selves, that's failing us. So we're failing ourselves because we're wanting something for ourselves instead of wanting God in our life. So of course spiritual things are boring. Of course the Bible is boring. Of course singing hymns is boring. Of course... All these things are boring. 
Because you see, you don't want what God wants. So you're bored right now. So let's confess a little bit who our God really is. Because it's not the Lord of all the universe who wrote this book and sent it to us. Who sent his son to die on Calvary's cross. You see, this instruction is really an instruction for us. Pray that you enter not in temptation. And when I read through the scriptures over and over again, I find the greatest failures in Christian or in godly societies, including Israel and the church, um, one of the greatest failures is that we want something different than God wants. We create our own God. Or we become our own God. Same difference. We don't really want God. And my instruction to you is very simple today. If you're bored, pray. Because you have entered into temptation and you are failing. You're failing just as badly as the disciples did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because they wanted something very different than what God wanted. Jesus succeeded. Not only was he not interested in sleep, there's no way he could have slept. You know why? Because he wanted something. He wanted what God wanted. He recognized that that he had a will and God has a will, um, but he subordinated himself to God's will. We're going to talk about that next week. But the question really is, are you really ready to surrender what you want to God? When you're ready to get on your knees or bow your head or close your eyes or however you pray, fold your hands, I don't know, sit on a stool, uh, stay on your head, however you pray, if it doesn't start off, oh, Lord of the universe, whose will I want. And then, much the same, you're just deceiving yourself with your praying. Let's recognize our false gods as for what they are. And oh, they're always enticing with empty promises. Um, I don't understand why truth is so boring to people other than the fact that it tells them what they don't want to hear. And why salesmen are so enthralling. Poor Chris is here as a salesman. We'll say used car salesmen. The ones that are willing to tell you whatever you want to hear to get the sale. And that's what your TV is, by the way. It'll tell you whatever you want to get the sale. Why we'd rather be lied to about what we want than told the truth that we, about what we don't is the weakness of our flesh. And we are to be praying, Lord, guard me. Guard my heart from that weakness inherent in man now in sin to want something different than what you want 
And therefore, because of that, I'm absolutely bored out of my skull with the things of God.